six months since we have it way too long. Guys, this is way too important. And I'm gonna tell you, again, as I do most Sundays, thank you for prioritizing the gathering of the saints. You might not see yourself that way, but as we discovered it during communion, because of what Christ has done for you, that's how he sees you as a saint. And we are told we're commanded to not forsake meeting together. So thank you. The hundreds of you, some weekends, depending on how you count it, the thousands of you that have tuned in week after week after week to keep the community sustained. Thank you for your tithes and your offerings and your generosity. Together, we have been able to give over $100,000 away just since COVID started to people in need here and around the world. Unbelievable. And thank you for committing to continue to join us in the coming weeks in person, because that's best, as you feel safe, but also online if you're not going to be here in person. I want to talk to you today as we're wrapping up this series on our words, on our language. I want to talk to you about the power of this gathering, the power of we and not me, hence the title of the talk, Say We and Not Me. We live in the Western culture. You and I grew up steeped in it. It's a culture of individualism. And we love it. We're proud of it. Autonomy, self-reliance, not being dependent on anybody. It's not just a value, let's be honest. In America, it's a virtue. Who among us doesn't go to bed every night thinking, well, I only have so many more years that I have to work, and then if I put enough money away for 10 or 20 or 30 years, then I don't have to get up for another 10 or 20 years. I can do whatever it is I want. I'm free, free to be, well, me. We are pick ourselves up by our bootstraps people. We love ourselves, a, a man-made woman or man. You do you, I'll do me. That's the mantra. It's good stuff, but it's incomplete stuff. And in terms of, of us, the gathering of God's people. It's incorrect stuff. The church, not surprisingly, is to be countercultural. It's not to be a, a me movement. It's never to be a you do your thing, I'll do my thing movement, but a we movement, a oneness movement. The community should be marked by a sense of collectivism, not individualism. Oneness and unity, not segregation and separation. And with what's going on since we stopped meeting, the drumbeat for separation and segregation just continues day after day. Now, we know that this is right. You spent any time around the church, you know it's a church core conviction, unity, oneness. But it's more than that. It's, it's easy to believe, but it's hard to live out. So I want to give you, as we get started, there's three reasons why we as Jesus' people need to put the we before the me when it comes to his church. First, there's what the Apostle Paul taught. You know who Paul is, many of you, right? A first century persecutor of this movement of Jesus. Remember, Jesus never meant to start a church. The word ecclesia that he said he was going to start, that was a movement. Paul tried to stamp out the movement. But after meeting the resurrected Christ, he became the great propagator of the movement. That Paul, speaking about this gathering, wrote this. For just as each one of us has a body with many members, 
And these members don't all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body. Each member, guys, listen to this. Tell me this doesn't go countercultural. Each member belongs to all of the others. In other words, we were created for a need for one another. We're incomplete without each other. We belong one to another. Each of us with a role to play. Now, I know we're different. That's by design. It's God's design. And while we, not me, is the goal, we does not assume that we all think alike or look alike or believe alike. We're all different with different talents, interests, cultures, colors, backgrounds, and beliefs. Unity is different than uniformity. We are not called, in fact, we're never called to uniformity. No church has the right to claim everybody be uniform. But it was Jesus who prayed that everybody that followed him would be united. Reason one we need to speak about we and not me is that we need each other, we belong to each other. You can't follow Christ alone. I know the online teaching or the online sermons or the online church is great. Trust me, I've been getting up on Sunday morning for as long as I can remember. I love nothing better. But it is not the command. We belong. Have your career, your marriage, and your we, not me, is that important. It's important for everything you care about. Second reason, we know it works. We've seen the power throughout secular world history. We know the history of the world and the history of the people united. United we stand, divided. This beginning, in the beginning, there were not a lot of churches. There was reflections of version of faith, one vision for. Now they weren't uniform. The early church had nothing in common, but they were united. There were Jews and Greeks, Romans and Gentiles, men and women, slaves and freemen, rich and poor. Jesus' church had a cultural difference. And in terms of real, real, things, they thought very differently from one another. They were any, but they were united. Not around, not even around most things or a lot of things. They were united around one. Thing. One thing. And the one thing, everything. We're much different than we are. 
Not a lot of uniform. They look different than each other. They made different amounts of money. They, they differed on who they were going to vote for, what their individual beliefs were, their backgrounds, their passions. I'm going to show you in a few minutes. They were actually arguing over a lot of things which were super important to their faith, but it was their ability to unite around one thing which changed the world. It's why you and I are here today, and if we get it right, if we get the one thing right, I'm promising you it can still change your house, your kids, our neighborhood, and the world. And so what was the one big powerful thing? If it wasn't their backgrounds or their beliefs or their customs or their cultures, it was their confession. It was their conviction. To be specific, it was Peter's. You know Peter, impetuous Peter, right? Jesus is out with his disciples one day, and he asks them the eternal question. The question that each of us has got to answer. In fact, I hope you'll answer it today before church is over. And your answer, it's your answer that changes everything. This question is such a turning point in Jesus' ministry. All the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all said we got to include this, because this is the one thing that could unite everything. Matthew recorded it this way. He said when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You know, those are the same answers you would get today. I don't know if any of you saw this, just in the last couple of weeks, Lifeway um, Research put a study out that showed a third of evangelical Christians, those people that believe Jesus at, at, at a pretty convinced, deep level, a third of evangelical Christians don't believe that Jesus is God. That's not their conviction or their confession. They say he's a good teacher, he's a prophet, just like the people in, in Caesarea Philippi were. Things haven't changed all that much. But then Jesus looks at those that follow him, and he says, but what about you guys? Who do you say I am? And so Peter, first one out of the boat, right? He says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Pretty simple, right? You're the savior, which at some level indicates he knew he needed saving. And he indicates that you're divine. You're not merely a great teacher. You're God. And that's pretty important because we owe God an allegiance and a debt that you don't owe a great teacher. Now listen to Jesus' response. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I'm telling you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, my movement, my gathering, this. And the gates of Hades isn't going to overcome it. On your confession, I'm going to build the movement. It's an confession that I'm the Messiah. The Savior, the recognition that you're a people in need of saving. I'm a God, and I'm God, and I do worship. That confession, that truth. Peter, that's the one thing. I'm going to build my movement on that thing. That's the thing. And it'll change everything. It did. Now, sure, there were still Gentiles and, and Greeks and Romans and Jews. There were still rich people and poor people. There were people of dark skin and, oh, well, it was the Middle East, and darker skin. There were women and children, slaves and free. But suddenly those things pale to the one thing.
Suddenly things changed. Women were given a seat at the table. Children suddenly mattered because of, of their shared conviction and confession. And isn't it interesting that if we left here now and did a little research project, and we went to every church from Hackettstown all the way into Morristown, our church services might look, not look the same. Preaching might be different. Worship might be different. Statements of faith will differ. But there is just one thing that every church from Hackettstown to Morristown agrees on. It's the one thing. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If we could just focus on that. Imagine the power of the gathering if we focused on the one thing instead of all of the other things. Just imagine what could be accomplished, whose identities and roles would be getting changed, how the poor would be fed, the lost would be found, the oppressed would be free. It's the power of we found in this confession, this conviction. And finally, here's why it's really important. Because Jesus prayed about this for you. Final words matter. We know that. We write books about what people's final words are. Jesus' final prayer was about this. It wasn't for your welfare or your aching hip or your bank account. It wasn't that you be protected or theologically correct or righteous. It was that you would be one, one people, one priority, one confession. He said, I, he said my prayer is not for them alone, speaking of his disciples. I, I pray for those who believe in me through their message. That's you. That all of them would be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That we'd be united as God and Jesus are, that type. May it also be in us, so that, here's why it was so important. Here's why Jesus left his, his dying breaths with this prayer to his Father. So that the world may believe you sent me. Father, I pray that they be one, that they not let themselves get divided, split up, fractioned. Because if they are, then people are not going to believe. If they become me people and not we people, the movement dies. But if they become a people who would say we, if they unite around one thing together, a shared conviction and confession, then the movement wins. It always does. We, not me, is how the world will know. You know who the world includes? It includes your wife and your husband. It includes your kids, your boss, your neighbor. The way we, this church, listen to me now, it's crazy out there right now. But the way this church loves one another, the way we relate to one another, the way we want, that's how the world will know. Not because the band is really good and loud, but how we love one another. Now this shouldn't be all that shocking. Only a couple chapters earlier, Jesus said the same thing. He said, a new command, I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. But then here it comes. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. Not by how much money you give, how many missions trips you go on, how many times you come to church. By the way you love one another, this is how people will know. People ask me all the time about 
my kids, my kids are older at this point, they're grown up, and they're all following Jesus at one, at, and wrestling with him, like they should, at one level or another. And I'll have friends that have younger kids, and they're like, well, what was the secret sauce? Was it like the devotions? Was it something you did? Was it Bibles? What did you, what did you and Joan do that, that your kids seem so interested in Christ? Well, there's a lot there. Here's what I would tell you. If you want your kids to follow Christ, get in his church. Be part of the movement. Don't get caught up in what divides and, and, and it causes divisions and infighting and gossip and arguing. Love one another. Your kids will see that. Your kids will be attracted to it. I was talking to my daughter who's out of college in Indiana last night. I said, we're having our first church thing. And she's like, I would love to be there. I miss everybody so much. Paul put it this way to the Romans. He said, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is not earth-shattering news. I get that you know unity is important. You know it's a big theme in Scripture, right? But as most things in Scripture, they're easy to know and hard to live out. And right now, it's harder than it's ever been. Because I think the me factor of the world is slipping quietly into the church. I'm not totally sure. I only know from what I see online. But it's not good. It seems like, and I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about the church. The divisions which exist out there are being brought in here. And if that happens, we lose. Let me make it personal. When that happens. We are not able to witness to one another, to our spouses, to our kids, to our neighbors, who Christ is and how God loves them. Let me push your buttons for a minute. I'm going to tell you a story. Paul says, with one mind and one voice, glorify God. And then he says this. If you're like me, you're having a problem with this right now. But here's what he said. I didn't say it. Accept one another. Just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God accept one another it doesn't say approve of everything it doesn't say always agree with one another it says accept one another and here comes my favorite two verses words in scripture they're all over the bible i'm going to do a series on this one time just as christ accepted you how did christ accept you was your theology right when christ accepted you was your lifestyle perfect when christ accepted you were your political bit leanings perfect? Your bents perfect? Was your language right? Were your words right? How about this? When Christ accepted you, was your heart right? No. But he accepted you even more than that. He served you, loved you, and died for you. Accept one another. Doesn't mean don't advocate for the truth. It doesn't mean don't stand up for what you believe in. What it does mean is you don't let those things be the one thing. You don't let those things be the thing that separates you. I had a friend recently online. She's of one political bent, and she decided she couldn't take it anymore, and she deleted every friend that's not of that political bent. That's not the one thing. The goal is not to be right about everything. The goal is to be one, to be a we and not a me. And it's not easy 
because we believe in a lot of really serious and important things that, that we've read in the Bible and that are true, that our mom and dad taught us and are true. So let me share a little story with you. It's actually a story of while you're, while you're here this morning. It's too long for me to put the verses up on screen, so the screen, so I'm just going to summarize it. And I'm going to give you my take on the lesson here. And of course, if you don't agree with me, that's okay, because this is not the one thing. You'll forgive me, and we'll focus our, on the centrality of Christ. Luke picks up the story of the early church. Jesus ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit descends on folks in Jerusalem, just as Jesus predicted it would. Because of persecution, the church scatters. Some stay in Jerusalem, others to the ends of the earth. And what happened is the church moved out of Jerusalem. Is people like Peter and Paul... They start speaking to people about Christ who don't think like, look like, eat like, vote like, act like, or believe like the Jews in Jerusalem. And that was because they were Gentiles. They had a different culture, a different background, and a different belief system. And for the early church, this was a big problem. Because guys like Peter and Paul... They shared a Jewish background, a Jewish training, a Jewish tradition, a Jewish religious system. It had been packed into their brains. And part of that training was three very deeply ingrained beliefs that Gentiles, non-Jews, were dogs, that you couldn't associate with them. No good law-abiding Jew would go into the home of a Gentile, let alone eat with them. The second thing was that God had given the Jewish people strict dietary laws, and they were to obey those laws. That's what separated them from the Gentile dogs. And the third was, and this was a huge part of the Jewish people's past, the third was the concept of circumcision. It was the sign of the old covenant before Christ. If you were going to follow God, you had to be circumcised. That was it. It was part of their training, their heritage, their background, their religion. It's what they stood on. It was for them the one thing. But the problem was it was those things that were keeping the Gentiles from becoming one with the Jews in this new thing, this gathering of Jesus. It's not because of this super important, excuse me, it was not, they weren't one because of this super important thing. These things for them became non-negotiable. These things from their past, their experiences, how they, how they were raised, what they were taught. Have you known anybody like this? In, a, in my own family, we have some folks that come from a very um, legalistic religious bent. No drinking, no dancing, no smoking, no, no TV, no playing cards, no dice. My, my mother-in-law to this day has never been to the movies. I asked her one time, Mom, why have you never gone to the movies? And she, she said, well, we were always taught growing up, if I went to the movies and Jesus came back while I was in the movies, then, you know, I'd be in trouble. Now, that goes against the 90% of the other things she believed, but she really believed that. My father-in-law, you know, so against uh, any kind of consumption of any, any kind of alcohol. So I've grown up in this, that these things became very big things for them. Well, two things happen in the, in the book of Acts that Luke records with the early church. The first is that God comes to Peter, and he gives him a vision of all these animals that under the old covenant, Peter had been taught, you don't, you don't go near, let alone eat. 
And Peter has this dream where God is lowering these animals before them, and God tells them to eat. Well, Peter, being a good law-abiding Jew, think about this, looks at God and says, God, I can't do that. It's against my religion. Think about that one. How much of our religious past can get in the way of the movement of God? Some of you know the story. God says to him, do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. And he winds up being sent to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, who he would never have eaten with, let alone go into the home, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And he goes into that house, to the house of unclean dogs, and he shares the gospel with them, and he can't believe this. But do you know what happens? The Holy Spirit falls on these uncircumcised, bacon-eating Gentile dogs, just like it did to the religious Jews in Jerusalem. The same thing happened to the circumcised as the uncircumcised. And Peter begins to understand the power of we. God must be up to something so much bigger than just me and my beliefs. But it's not easy. A short time later, Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming, proclaiming Christ to the Gentiles in Antioch. And they're having a massive revival. Thousands of them are coming to Christ. But they're not saying anything about the dietary laws or circumcision. Saying too much about circumcision, by the way, has a way of keeping the converts out. I noticed many of you ignored the circumcision tent that I had set up up front prior to entering this morning. And so a fight breaks out, a church fight. The biggest church fight in history because the question becomes a simple one. Can Gentiles become Christians without the religious laws? that have been consciously ingrained into the minds of the Jews. Well, this is settled in Acts 15. This is a very famous thing in church history called the Jerusalem Council. All the bigwigs of the church assemble in Jerusalem. Peter, James, John, Barnabas, Paul, they're all there to figure this out. What are we going to do? We don't think the same. So Peter, he gets up and he, he says, I have to tell you what happened at the house of Cornelius. It was this room full of bacon-eating, uncircumcised Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. And I didn't like it, but it happened. And then Paul and Barnabas, they stand up and they say, that's exactly what happened to us in Antioch. We started preaching Christ there, and suddenly all those other things didn't matter. All that mattered was the one confession. James, who has had so much to say about our words, studying all summer, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was in charge of the church in Jerusalem. James stands up after hearing all this, and he renders a decision that changed the world. Here's what he wrote. It is my judgment, therefore, based on what you guys have said, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. But James, what about the dietary laws? These people eat bacon. But James... What about the foreskin issue? Nobody's going to know who anybody is in the bathhouse anymore. These people need to be circumcised. James, you're, you're making this way too easy. Raise the bar, James. And see, James goes, you don't understand. That's not the issue. One is the issue. The issue is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
That is the issue, and that is not at stake in this fight. Our focus is one, one. And so he goes on, he says, write to the church in Antioch and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and confusing. But here's what he's basically saying. He says, listen, write them back and tell them that the Jews are going to be making all kinds of concessions to focus on our one confession and conviction. So I'm going to ask you guys in Antioch, you Gentiles, to do the same thing. You know that it offends the Jews when you, when you eat food that, that they don't agree with. So could you do it? Of course you could do it. I'm asking you not to do it. Could you do it? Of course you could do it. I'm, a, I'm asking you not to do it. By the way, this sounds a lot like the mask debate we currently find ourselves in, right? Paul would later say the same thing to the church at Rome. He goes, you can eat whatever you want, but don't, don't eat things that you know are going to offend people. And he says abstain from sexual immorality because unlike any other sin, that sin messes you up on the inside. Guys, you're here, gentlemen especially. You're here this morning because the church tore down the wall so you could be here. They were willing to accept uncircumcised people that they were taught were dogs, like you and me. They were willing to focus on the one thing that changed everything and not all of the things that they didn't agree on. And there were plenty. We was more important for them than the me of things. That's our call. That's what we have to do. And the question is, will we follow it? I heard somebody... <laughs> The question is over the next 90 days, will this church follow it? I heard somebody put it this way. Will we prioritize we over me when it comes to our politics? Will we continue to allow the kingdom of the world divide, to divide the kingdom of God? Are you a Republican first or are you a Christian first? Are you a Democrat first or a Christian first? And here's a convicting question. Are you more concerned about who's in office than you are who's in heaven? Because if we get it right, and everybody out there sees everybody in here acting a little bit differently, if we get it right, maybe today the most divided time and maybe the history of our country, your spouse will see it, your kids will see it, your neighbor will see it, something different, a love, a unity, a cause, a confession that unites us that is greater than what could divide us. It's going to be rare to live this way in the coming weeks. Don't fall into the kingdom of the world. This week, we commemorated the 19th anniversary of September 11th. And I don't know, I, this year seemed different than any other year to me of, of remembering. I think it's because as a country, we become so much more of me people than we people. It wasn't that way on September 12th. I don't know if you're old enough to remember it, but for one day, it just seemed a little bit different. This year, when everybody was saying, never forget, never forget, never forget, I couldn't help but think, I think we've remembered the wrong thing. We remember what was done to us, but we forgot who we were. We forgot the lesson of September 12th. 
I was reflecting on it and it occurred to me what brought us together, and I'm going to conclude with this, what brought us together was three things that day. We had a confession and a conviction, just like the early church had. It was about our freedom and our way of life. We had a combatant, an enemy that we suddenly realized was much greater than the enemy we thought we had across the political aisle. And we had a cause to avenge and prevent something like this from ever happening again. There was great power in our we. Church, can I just remind you of something? We have a confession and a conviction. It was Peter's. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Church, can I remind you of something? Nobody's telling you this, but I'm going to tell you this. They're lying to you. You have a combatant, but it is a much bigger foe than the one you think. It is not the foe on the political divide. The issue in the next 90 days is not going to be, are you a Republican, a Democrat, a liberal, a conservative? That's not our foe. Paul nailed it when he told the Ephesians, our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's each other, but against rulers authorities, against the world powers of darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. You're fighting the wrong people. One is not winning. Our combatant is so much bigger than somebody who thinks differently than we do. Paul described the enemy this way, and he warned you and I, be sober-minded and watchful. Don't fall for this. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In fact, if you want to make sure your eye is on the right enemy, here's what John said. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Well, we would all agree with that. Yes, those people over there are bad. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Who does not love his brother? Who does not love his brother? And finally, we have a confession, we have a combatant, and we have a cause. Jesus concluded that final prayer about you. And I'll conclude the message today in the same way. He said, Father, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. Our we, and not just talking about me and what I think and what I believe and the way I'm going to go, our we and not me has two purposes. One we saw already, the world will know, your kid will know, your spouse will know, your neighbor will know that God sent Jesus. And second, the world will know that you sent me and you've loved them as you love me. Guys, I can't be any clearer than this. I hope you can hear me over the traffic in the back. If you want your spouse, your kids, your neighbor to know that Jesus loves them, 
It's not enough that the B-I-B-L-E tells them that. It's not enough that you sing it at bedtime. It's not okay just because your theological positions are good or your political positions are right. They will know that Jesus loves them if it looks different in this place than it does out there. If they look in here and they see a people that share a confession, if they see a people that understand who the enemy really is, and if they see a people with the right cause, then the world might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that He loves as much as God loves Jesus, his son. Church, stand with me. Worship with me. And for the love of God, in the next 90 days, please say we and not me.